0: All right, now tonight, Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 22, and what we're going to focus on is the Bible's reliability when it makes scientific statements. As we've already said, last week we gave kind of an introduction to this. We we tried to answer the question, is science against God? And, And the answer emphatically is no. There are some scientists that are against God, But science itself simply tells us how a thing works. It tells us how God organized that particular thing to work. So the two go perfectly together. Uh, Science, true science, magnifies the work of God. And, And it allows us to appreciate how fearfully and wonderfully everything is made. We can look inward with the microscope. And see the brilliance of our biology. We can look outward with the telescope. And we can magnify God for the firmament and this handiwork there. Uh, Tonight what we're going to look at is when we read the Bible. And you read a scientific statement in the Bible. The Bible doesn't spend a lot of time explaining the inner workings of the various things we see in nature. But it is obviously going to make statements that do apply to nature. Can we rely on the Bible when it makes these claims. And I'd like to show you tonight, we can not only rely on it, but in most cases, you're going to see that the Bible is at least a thousand, sometimes two thousand, in a few cases, three thousand years ahead of science. The Bible will tell us something that no scientist could have known in that day, no human. have known in that time. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse number 22. And before we even go any further and read anything, let's go ahead and bow our heads and pray together. Ask God to help us with this tonight. Father, thank you that we can gather. We can sing about um, our one day going home and when that role is called up yonder. Father, we thank you that we can sing tonight about how good it is to be saved. And Lord, you truly... Uh, you are the, the fairest among 10,000, Lord. You, you are the brightness and the, and the glory of everything in our life. Everything good about us, Lord. It came from you. It is about you. Thank you for it. Help us as we dive into the Word. Please make all these things clear. Let us walk away just in amazement at this book you've given us. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Isaiah 40, in verse number 22, we have this incredible statement. The Bible says here, it is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. All right, there's actually a couple things I'd like for you to see in this verse, but the first thing I think you'll immediately see in the first part of the verse. It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. Now, why would Isaiah... He's living in about 720 BC. How could he know that the, a, the earth, when observed, right, by a human? We're not talking about uh, the ability for somebody to see it in a 3D form. But when you on the earth look up at the moon, what do you see? A circle. You don't see a sphere. You see a circle. So this is an, uh, this is an observational comment here. It's he that sitteth upon the circle, the circle of the earth. Why call it a circle? what would make isaiah say that from a scientific standpoint it really doesn't there's no good explanation to say that isaiah would have known the earth has the shape of a circle it wasn't until you get christopher columbus you remember his famous voyage in 1492 he sailed the ocean blue and uh, they even warned columbus as he was leaving spain heading out for the new world he was looking for india But instead of going east, he thought to go west. He figured he'd take a shortcut that no one else had ever taken. And some of his cohorts warned him, don't fall off the edge of the earth. There were flat earthers back then. (laughs) And they thought that sure enough, you can get to the edge of the earth and just fall off. And, of course, Columbus didn't. Now, Columbus didn't figure out the whole spherical or circle of the earth thing. It was a few years after that. A guy named Magellan, or Magellan, depending on how you'd like to pronounce that, Magellan, he circumnavigated the earth. He circumnavigated it. He went all the way around, made the loop from 1519 to 1522, and that gave science its first solid observational evidence that the earth is indeed the shape of a circle, that it is round. All right, So that's 1500s A.D., this is 720 B.C., 2,200 years before science could definitively say, we have tested it, we have proven it, the earth is a circle. Now, ancient Greeks back in the 5th century and 3rd century B.C., so we're talking, you know, the 400s and the 200s B.C., by looking up and tracking the stars and the horizons and things like that, they were able to make some guesses that the earth probably does have a curve to some extent or maybe even is round. But they had no evidence for that. It was just a hypothesis that they put out there. Science could not definitively say it is a circle, and like I said, until the 1500s. So is the Bible reliable? Think about this now. If you read this in, let's say, 700 BC, you sit down with your your copy of the prophet Isaiah, which, right, nobody had that, but what a blessing that would have been to have the scroll open It is he that sits upon the circle of the earth. You're reading that scratching your head going, huh? Why would you say he's sitting upon the circle of the earth? And and 100 years would pass, 200 years, a millennium would pass, and you would still be scratching your head saying, why did he say circle? But if you give science long enough, it will catch up with the claims that are made in the Bible. Now, another thing I'd like for you to see in this verse, look at the end of it, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. Uh, Let me remind you, I'm not a scientist. I don't pretend to know all the uh, terms and how to pronounce all the words and explain all these things perfectly. I'm not an astrophysicist. But right around the time that Hubble put up his telescope and began to peek out into the stars, he began to realize that the universe is indeed expanding. Now, this theory had actually people had put this forth even before Hubble. There was a man named Lamitre. Anybody here speak French? No. L e m a i with a housetop, t r e. Le Lamitre. There's my house top. Le Lamitre. Then I have a house top. Right. So a guy named Georges Lamitre. He had written a couple of years. Earlier, about 1927, this is before Hubble, he was 1929, he had written a few things about the, the universe expanding. And even Einstein, back in 1915, he had made a few uh, theories and a few guesses as to what perhaps, theory of relativity and all that, maybe the universe was getting bigger. It was not just a static uh, object or thing, or a, let's say boundary of space. But Hubble looked through the telescope and realized, sure enough, it is continuing to expand outward. Of course, science by this point has the idea of a big bang, so something went off. Of course, we as Bible believers might raise the question, who put the something there that went off? And then who told it to, to go bang, right? There's lots of questions that go with that. But the idea of a big bang is there was nothing, and then there was something. And then that something went boom. And that when it went boom, it, it caused cosmic radiation, forgive me astrophysicist in the room if you can explain it better but it starts going out and out and out and getting bigger and bigger and just bleeding out to the shape of a big megaphone if you can think of it like that in your in your mind now is there anything in the bible that would suggest that the universe is continually expanding and getting bigger and bigger and bigger look again at the end of the verse that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. Do you see there, he, it doesn't say it in the past tense. He doesn't say he stretched out the heavens and then stopped. It doesn't say he spread out. It says it in the present continuous tense. He stretcheth out the heavens, spreadeth them out. It is in the present continuous. There it is, 720 BC, that the universe is indeed the, the, the boundaries of what we would call space is continuing to be stretched out. That little nugget was waiting for science to unearth for well over 2,500, 2,700 years. All right, get, come to Job chapter 26. Job chapter 26. Job 26. And we'll find a couple of other interesting things here, I believe. Job 26. Job 26 and verse 7. Job 26 and verse 7. Job is speaking here, and he's describing God to a certain extent. And he says, He stretcheth out the north. What's the north? Well, again, this is a human being from his point of observation, his perspective. He looks up, right? He looks up, and then when he looks up, he's saying, That's north. And he says, he stretcheth out. Do you see the present continuous used again there? He stretches it out. He stretcheth out the north over the empty place and hangeth the earth upon nothing. So we have the expanding universe once again mentioned here, but then we also at the end of the verse, it says he hangs the earth upon nothing. Now think about this for a moment. You and I, we don't even blink an eye when we read that. We go, of course, obvious. You know why? We've seen pictures. We've had people go to the to the moon and take snapshots, you know, they're floating around in their spaceships and taking, spaceships, is that the right term? <laughs> Flo- floating around in their shuttles, or that, that sounds a little bit better. I like, I like the idea of floating around in a spaceship, though, that sounds, that sounds like something Elon Musk would say, but anyway, we're floating around in our spaceships, and people can take pictures of the earth, and we see that it is a circle, and we see that it is indeed hanging upon nothing. That is how the common man would describe what he sees, Right? This isn't the deep scientific explanation. This is just what a man would observe. But how could Job observe that? There was no Elon Musk making individuals rocket ships for people to go up and buzz around the earth and take photos of the earth hanging in the middle of nothing. The earth hangs upon nothing. So the suspended earth, the common and I use this term lightly, the common scientific thought of Job's day was that there was a gigantic tortoise. This tortoise of cosmic size. And the earth was resting on the back of that giant tortoise. So, yeah, the poor tortoise. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot of weight to carry. But there, there, that was the common thought of the day is the earth has to be sitting on something holding it up. But Job somehow makes this claim, the earth is hanging upon nothing. This is not Job saying that I went out and tested this and now I'm making a scientific, you know, finding based on my tests. This is Job revealing something about science from revelation. It's the only way I I can understand this is possible is God told Job what to say about the earth. So Job arguably, is the oldest book in the Bible. The events of Job, I think an incredibly strong argument can be made that the events of the book of Job happen well before the Exodus. So before Moses ever lived, you have the events of Job. Now, Job was probably written down, and then eventually it makes its way into the Hebrew literature and so forth. So I think that to say this was written in 1500 BC, easily, perhaps even 1800 BC. Some people put it even earlier than that. This is an extremely old work of literature that you're dealing with. And yet, the, the, the ability for mankind to observe the earth hanging upon nothing is something that happened in the 20th century. So you're looking 3,000, maybe 500 years before that was ever possible for science to make that statement. God has given that to us in the Scripture. Now, in this same passage, look with me please at verse number 8. Verse number 8, it says, He bindeth up the waters in His thick clouds, and the cloud is not rent under them. So he understands that clouds, the Bible describes clouds as God's bottles, and they hold water. I, honestly, though, if you and I were to go outside and watch the rain come down, you might also start to figure out that rain comes from clouds, right? You would be able to put that together. So that's nothing real deep. Uh, but come to uh, Psalm chapter 135, and what we're looking at now are some a few verses that mention what we call the hydrological system. The hydrological system. And to put it very simply, this is the idea of evaporation, then condensation, precipitation, and then collection. So it's the water cycle, basically, that God has built into nature. But the Bible, when it speaks about it, it gives us a clear description of how a man would observe that happening, and it's not wrong. It doesn't get deep into all the workings of it, but it's not wrong. Psalm 135, uh, read with me verse 7. He causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He maketh lightnings for the rain. He bringeth the wind out of his treasury. So there at the beginning, he causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. So he, th- this, the author here knows that this condensation is, is rising. It's ascending and it's going up into the clouds. Look at uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes, that's Prietiker. We'll stick in. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And let's take a look here at verse number 6. Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 6. Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 6. The Bible says right after Proverbs, if you're struggling a bit there, Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 6. The wind goeth toward the south and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. So this is you can see a very elementary, basic description of the hydrological system. Now, it is true, back in the BC days, there were some Greek philosophers and, uh, let's say, early thinkers back in the 3rd and 4th 5th century. They were making predictions about the earth's watering system. But they couldn't do any better than what these Hebrew writers had put, to, put in the Bible already. So, Solomon, this is 1,000... Um, well, Solomon would be about 950 BC. David, Psalm 135, that's 1,000 BC. Job, 1,500, maybe 1,800 BC. They already had this figured out. Now, I think part of this you could get by observation. All I'm trying to show you here, this may not be some miraculous instance of God revealing some special scientific truth that nobody could have understood, like the earth hanging on nothing. That's something very incredible. But I'm trying to show you that when you read in the Bible about a scientific claim, such as the water system. It's accurate. Nothing's wrong with what they've said here, and yet way ahead of any proper, what we would know as scientific experiments going on to explain it all. Uh, Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2. So the early Greeks, they had a few ideas and, and Their thinking, they believed that water must come from the ground and not just the sky. Right? So, and, and they understood it. it has to start in the rivers and then it would evaporate, go up. So the, the Greeks had mentioned a few things about it, but not even as well. They didn't do as well as Solomon did at explaining it. It wasn't until around eight, uh, 1800 AD, a man named John Dalton began to unpack the inner workings of the hydrological system. But this idea that water must come from the ground. I want to show you in Genesis chapter 2, before any scientist could explain it, Genesis 2 verse 6. Genesis 2 verse 6. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Now here's an early comment. You have some evaporation, some condensation, fog or mist as you see it here. Those are extremely small uh, water droplets extremely small, forming in the sky. That's what we see as fog. It says that the mist, this, these water droplets, they come from the earth. Now, I understand that's coming from the surface of the earth and the heat, you know, beginning to rise. We're going to talk about that a little bit more just in a moment. But there's something a little deeper, I think, buried in this verse. There's mist, there's water from the earth. Now, in a few weeks, we're going to have a lesson about Noah's flood, and we're going to talk about the science behind that and how the story about Noah and a flood and an ark and the earth being covered in water is scientifically reliable. There's, there's no problems with the biblical record of that and what science has, has figured out so far, but we're going to talk about it more in, in detail there. Let me just mention here, there is more water inside the earth than there are in the oceans, there's more water trapped within the sediment and the rocks inside the earth than there are in the oceans. Now, that's, that's science has dug down, and I don't even know how they figured that out. All I know is that's what I've read in their books. And, uh, in, and here we have it in Genesis chapter 2, that a form of water rising up from the earth. So to say that anybody could observe water coming down from the sky, but the observation that water could also originate from the earth that's a bit of that's a step of faith to make such a claim all right uh, come back to the book of job back to the book of job and chapter 38 job chapter 38 as I say, mist itself, we, we could see that as coming from the surface of the earth, but still more. The Bible has some of these little hidden truths, these nuggets parked here and there in the Bible for us to find. And Job 38 is a fantastic chapter in the Bible for anything scientific. If you guys ever want to, if you're a science kind of a person, I'm not. I'm more of a history guy. I enjoy studying the history books. But if you're a science person, you want to park Park yourself in Job 37, 38, 39, 40, right in there, because Job thinks he has everything figured out. Uh, I say everything loosely, but he thinks that he's, he's got his head wrapped around everything. And God shows up in Job chapter 38. He shows up in a whirlwind. He says, hey, Job. Hey, hey, big boy. Let's have a little chat, you and me. Now, I love you, Job, and I know you love me, but you need to answer for a few things because you've been kind of running your mouth a little bit. <laughs> So let me ask you, Job, where were you when I did this, when I did this, when I did, and you just look at the, look at the chapter. Verse two, question mark. Verse five, question, question. Verse seven, question. Verse eight, question. Verse 11, question. Verse 13, que- Do you see the question marks at the end of it? God is asking Job, where were you when I did this, when I did this, when I did this, when I did this? And here's Job's answer unanimously every time. Uh. He has no answer. This is God saying, this is what I've set up in nature. You haven't even noticed it yet, have you? (laughs) Probably the oldest book in the Bible. Isn't it interesting that God put all those little scientific nuggets in probably the oldest book of the Bible saying, you guys haven't even begun to scratch the surface of what I've hidden in the earth that can be found. So let's come to verse 24 now. God asked Job, by what way is the light parted? Okay, well, let's just pause there for a moment. There's more to be said about that. I think the verse intends this to be understood slightly differently, but let's just talk about the idea of light being parted. Isaac Newton, do we know this name? Isaac Newton, okay. He is credited with discovering how light can be parted through a prism. Okay, not, not, not prison like bars and a, and a key and that kind of thing. Prism ends with an M, P-R-I-S-M, he figured this out in about 1665. He published a paper on it in 1672 about light refraction. Now, if you want to do this experiment yourself, when I was a kid, my favorite way to do it was to get the hose pipe, turn the water on, and I'd spray the water, and you could see a rainbow. You know, if you hit the light going right through the water, it creates a prism, and you are parting the light. God say by, He said here in verse 24, by what way is the light parted? Well, that way is a prism. Now, even back in Job's day, as the, light would, as the water rather would come down or water would be sprayed, they would also have access to a prism, and they could see a rainbow come forth. But the idea of explaining it as light being parted, and that's what's creating what we see as a rainbow, well, that science had yet to figure out how to explain that. But God says, I'm telling you what's happening, light is getting parted. So light can actually be broken down. Now it'd be very tempting to just think when you see a a ray of sunshine, that's it. It's just a ray of sunshine. But you can break that ray of sunshine into various parts. Here it is, oldest book in the Bible, telling you that light can be parted. I think it goes a step further here. Let's continue to read. By what way is the light parted? Which scattereth the east wind upon the earth. I must admit, this is the first time, as I was preparing for this lesson, it is the first time I've looked deeply into the end of the verse. I've always focused my attention on the prism and the light being parted, and I find that fascinating. But now, let's read it in its entirety. The light gets parted, and the light scatters the wind, the east wind, upon the earth. Well, now, I must admit, I scratched my head for a minute there and said, how does the light affect the wind? I I can't remember. Now, God knows I did not pay attention in science class. (laughs) That was one of the more boring classes when I was going to school, so maybe I missed it. But I don't remember anybody explaining to me how light would affect the wind or scatter the wind. As I got to looking into this, when the sun rises, it rises in the east, right? Right? So the sun rises in the east, and then the sun rises, and over the horizon, light would shoot forth. Yes? It says here in verse 24, it scatters the east wind, because that's where you first see the light on any day of the week. All right? And when that light shines onto whatever dark place, that light also brings with it some heat rays. The heat of the sun would then heat up the air in that area, hot air rises, when hot air rises, cool air rushes in underneath it, and this creates wind. And I don't, I, I don't know if Job had that figured out. I seriously doubt it, and that's why God asked him, can you explain this to me? What makes the wind blow? There are several things that makes wind blow. <laughs> right? <sighs> there are lots of things that can make the wind blow. But that... That's way ahead of what science had figured out. I tried my level best to look around for some answers as to when science wrapped their head around it. I found a guy named Jacques Charles, a French physicist in the 1780s. He discovered a way of heating gas that would cause it to expand and rise and hot air balloons and all of that. And then I got my crack scientist on the case and asked Christina to look it up. And she she did some good research for me. And there's a, a man named Robert Hooke H-O-O-K-E, uh, in, in 1667, he started to do some research and then a man named Edmund uh, Halley or Haley in 1686 and they started to study the systematic trade winds and so forth. So I'm gonna put it back to maybe the 1600s is when science started to figure out, sure enough, the light and the heat from that ray of sunshine would actually cause hot air rise, cold air, and then the winds would begin to blow. There it is, oldest book in the Bible. God had already told us that's how it is. Look at Leviticus now, chapter 17. Leviticus chapter 17. Folks, you understand tonight, this isn't something that uh, perhaps you walk out and, and has immediately improved your practical life, you know, this is not something you're going to use maybe at work tomorrow, uh, maybe it won't improve your marriage, or, or uh, lift you out of some sort of depression Here's what we're trying to accomplish tonight. Can you trust your Bible? Now, do you see how I'm indirectly, if you know you can trust your Bible, and that this Bible is an amazing book that is not put together by mere men, but it certainly bears the fingerprints of God all over it, then the next time you open it, hopefully tomorrow morning, you open it up with a new appreciation. Or or a reinvigorated appreciation to say, God, surely you can show me something. There's something I haven't seen yet. So Leviticus 17, verse 11. Now again, this is one of those statements that, to a certain extent, I think anybody, any human being, could have figured this out just through general observation. But the depth of it, it took centuries for science to figure out. Leviticus 17:11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood. Now, as I said, on an elementary level, we know this. You cut somebody's throat, you cut an animal's throat, it bleeds out, it's dead. So you get it, that the blood goes along with the life of that that entity. But it wasn't until the 17th century AD, a man named William Harvey in 1620, he discovered that biological life is maintained by the blood. And that it was the blood that carries nutrients and oxygen to the entire body. That was 1620. So when God says the life of the flesh is the blood, yes, but the depth of that, that it is actually the blood, the quality of your blood, that will determine the quality of the health of your flesh. And if you look at how many diseases there are that are blood-related, you, you start to see the importance of, of such a verse. Uh, So the life of the flesh is in the blood. Now, along these lines, well, we're in Leviticus. Come to chapter 15. Leviticus chapter 15. Now, you see, back in the day when Moses wrote this, you realize many of the heathen, many of the Gentiles around the Israelites, they would drink blood on a consistent basis. This was not a big deal to them. That is why you see so many prohibitions about that in the Old Testament. Do not drink the blood, don't eat the blood. Right. We're not talking about having a medium rare steak, guys. We're talking about you've cut the animal's throat and now you're drinking the blood. God said don't do that. He didn't explain all the medical reasons why you shouldn't. But all of the dirty stuff about that animal is in that blood. Cuz the life of the flesh is in the blood. So don't So he didn't give a scientific reason why, he just said, don't do it. 3,000 years later, science can now tell us, that's really good advice. (laughs) Because all the contamination of that animal is contained in its blood, and you don't want to be partaking of that. Now, guys, understand, God God didn't tell the Jews that only for health reasons. It wasn't just for good hygiene and, and health. It was to separate them from the heathen as well. But the depth of that verse... There's no way Moses could have appreciated the depth of it when he wrote it. Leviticus 15 now, verse number 13. Leviticus uh, 15 and verse 13. It says here, And when he that hath an issue is cleansed of his issue, then he shall number to himself seven days for his cleansing, and wash his clothes, and bathe his flesh in, help me with the next two words, Running water and shall be clean. Over and over again, you'll see this throughout the the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, especially in Leviticus. Use running water whenever you're trying to take something that's unclean and make it clean. Now, in our modern-day society, that doesn't take us by surprise. I mean, that's kind of common knowledge now. You want running water. But I've been in some places even now that don't use running water consistently. And it's amazing just introducing the Bible into a certain area and learning some of these very basic hygienic things. Even there's a place in the book of Deuteronomy that talks about when you're walking through the wilderness and nature begins to call. Wink, wink. Step away. Go dig a hole somewhere. Put it over there. All the way down to the 1300s A.D. During the days of the Black Death, millions of Europeans are dying and raw sewage is running through the streets. The Bible had it in there in 1500 BC. Don't put that stuff in, in, in public where everybody can be contaminated. Put it in a separate place. There it was. They didn't have all the science, but it just they just did what God told them to do, and it helped them. Now, when it comes to running water for hygienic purposes, let me give you a couple facts on this. In 1845, A man named Dr. Ignaz Semmelweis, he visited a hospital, and I'm not sure where he was, but he visited the hospital, and he was trying to take note of how many mothers were dying after giving birth, and he found the death rate to be 30%. Now, let that sink in for a moment. That means pretty much one out of every three mothers, after they gave birth, the mother would die. That's an alarming rate, one out of three mothers. Now, this Dr. Semmelweis, he started to stand back and observe a little further. And what was happening is a doctor would be in one room examining a patient who was dying or who had just died. That doctor would leave that room, go into the next room, and deliver the baby and not wash his hands. This is 1845 in a civilized country. And he saw this happening one after another, and he realized the contamination from patient A is being transferred to mom B over here giving birth, and that's why the mother is dying. So all he said was, guys, please wash your hands in, between, in running water, wash your hands, and, and before you see the next patient. The, the death rate amongst mothers who had just given birth immediately dropped from 30% down to 2% just because of that. The common practice, and you can pick up any book on the Civil War. Uh, The Civil War took place in 1860s in America. You would set up your triage center. So a a soldier who's been wounded on the battlefield, he comes into the triage and he's going to get some treatment. So without getting too graphic, they have their tools, their saws, their whatnots, because sometimes you have to amputate. And what the doctor would do is he would do the surgery on the patient, but then he would set the tool into a bucket of water or a bowl of water. He didn't use running water. He would just sometimes dip and rinse his tool off and then go to the next patient, and he was spreading the disease throughout the entire triage center, and hundreds of soldiers were dying not from the war but from disease simply because they didn't use running water. Once they instituted running water, we're talking mid-1800s A.D., The Jews had it in 1450 BC. If something's unclean and you want to make it clean, use running water. Not an in depth conversation as to why that's so special, but there it stands. It is scientifically reliable. All right, come to Psalm 148, please. Just a couple more thoughts for you, and then we'll go home. Psalm 148. Psalm 148. Let's read verse number, let's start at verse 1 because this is all about praising the Lord and, well, that's just good to do. Psalm 148, verse 1. Praise ye the Lord. That's a great command. It's so good, he says it again. Praise ye the Lord from the heavens. It's so good, he said it again. Praise Him in the heights. Now, forgive me, I don't mean to get to preaching this, but read this chapter later. The author starts at the very tippy-top of the universe and works his way down through the whole chapter, saying, you up there at the very top, praise the Lord. All right, next level down. Praise the Lord. Next level down. You praise the Lord. Next, level. All the way down to us here on the, on the very bottom level. Children of the people, praise the Lord. All right, so that's my little sermon, but let's come back to verse 2. Praise ye him, all his angels. Praise ye him, all his host; Praise ye him, sun and moon. Praise him, all ye stars of light. Praise Him, ye heavens of heavens, and ye waters that be above the heavens. There's actually a few things I'd like to postulate there, but I'm just going to work from the end of verse 4. Ye waters that be above the heavens. Have any of you looked out on on, on a clearish night and just appreciated the stars that God flung into the sky? Isn't that amazing when you read that in Genesis 1? He made the sun and the moon, and oh yeah, made the stars also, right? (laughs) He's just almost like an afterthought. God just took a handful of stars and just just scattered them across the sky. Beautiful. His handiwork is tremendous. Have any of you observed the water? Have any of you looked up and went, hey, look, I'm not talking about the clouds. I'm talking beyond the moon. You can look through your telescope, look past Jupiter, past Saturn, Past Mars, have you seen the water? No, nobody could. It's way, way too far out there. Come to Genesis chapter 1. This, this verse says that there are waters above the heavens. All right, look at Genesis 1. So here we have David in 1000 BC. He's telling us that there are waters above the heavens. Where did he get that idea? Genesis 1. Let's get verse 7. Genesis 1 and verse 7. He says here, And God made the firmament. That is what we would call space or outer space or the solar system. God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament. That is what we know as the seas, the rivers. I would call them oceans, those kind of things. The waters which are under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. So without getting into a deep thing here on on, uh, the heavens, in the Bible there are three heavens. In the first heaven you have the birds and the clouds. You actually see that later in Genesis 1. The second heaven is the home of the sun, moon, and stars. The third heaven is where God's throne is found and His manifested presence and all the angels and so forth. You read that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, that He resides in the third heaven. But here it says that above the heavens, right? We read that in Psalm 148, there are waters above the heavens, plural. So there's heaven number one, first heaven, second heaven, then there's water, and then there's the third heaven. Now, I'm even going to go as far as to say, I think this is a fair guess, maybe I'm wrong, that the floor of heaven is made of ice. Just guessing. We'll find out when we get there. If I'm wrong, no big deal. But, but the Bible says in Job, the face of the deep is frozen. And it is described as a sea of glass. Maybe that means it's frozen. So in the rapture, bring your ice skates. <laughs> just so that we can get around. I, I'm just guessing that's not a verse in the Bible. However, biblically speaking, there are waters above the firmament, the first and second heaven. Okay. Now, listen to this. I'm reading you an excerpt from a publication in California. This is in the year 2011. Caltech astronomers announced Friday the discovery of a massive reservoir of water 100,000 times larger than the sun that contains 140 trillion times more water than all the water in the world's oceans combined. I don't even know how to compute that. 140 trillion? How did they get It's just a lot. They end off by saying, the source exists in a quasar at the edge of the universe, officials said. These are people that were hooked up with NASA, these Caltech astronomers making these observations that at the very edge of what they know as the universe, there is a massive reservoir of water, 2011. You go on the NASA's website. I saw it a few years ago. I read it on NASA's website. I went to look at it last week. They took it down. I don't know why, but here it is published in many other publications. One other person in this same article said, it's another demonstration that water is pervasive throughout the universe, even at the very earliest of times. So so they said this water had to have been there from the very beginning. And to that I say, amen. We had that in Genesis chapter 1. We could have told you that without the rocket ships and the telescopes and all of your testing equipment. But there, there it stands, water at the edge of the universe. So let me just walk you through a few closing thoughts on this. As you begin to look through Genesis chapter 1, that's where you're at now with your Bible, yes? And you begin to observe the, the universe and nature as any human could. Do you find what we read in Genesis 1 to be consistent with what you see? Well, in Genesis chapter 1, down in verse 11 and 12, we read about trees yielding fruit whose seed was in itself And it brings forth fruit after his kind. Is that what we see? Do apple trees make apple trees? Mango trees make mango trees, right? Okay, that's consistent. That's consistent. And as far as we know, throughout the entire history of humanity, that's how it's been. It's never changed. Apples never evolved into mangoes. Mangoes never evolved into bananas. That's observable history, right? So according to what we see happening in nature, when I look around and... Observe, then I read my Bible, I say, yeah, that that makes sense. Now, I get it. The Bible says God made it like that, which makes perfect sense to me. But if you want to simply think of this as a naturalist, remember we explained that last time. A naturalist says everything can be explained within nature. Well, okay, trees bring forth after their kind. That's what we observe. We observe in verse 14, 15. If you look at verse 14, there's uh, lights in the firmament of heaven. There's a sun and a moon. They divide the day from the night. Let them be for signs, for seasons, for days and years. Well, when I look up, that is exactly what we have. We have two great lights. One of them rule the day, the other one rules the night, and we do use them for signs and seasons and times and years. That's, Yes. This is consistent with what we read in the Bible. As you continue on Genesis 1, you read about animals bringing forth after their kind and humans bringing forth after their kind. We have never observed any sort of leap in the evolutionary cycle where you jump from one kind to another kind. I'm not saying that that there are never adaptations or mutations within a kind, right? There are variations within the canine family. Variations within a feline family. I get it. God set it up so that we can have that variety. We don't deny that. We see that in the Bible. We see that all around us. But never have we seen a dog become a cat. We've never observed the monkey becoming a man. I've seen a few men act like monkeys. Right? De-evolution seems to be a thing, right? where, where we seem to be going backwards and we act we act like animals sometimes. But never have we seen an animal become a a human being. We just don't observe that. But according to what we see, look at Genesis 3. You know this story, yes? God has made a rule, don't eat from the tree in the midst of the garden. Mankind eats from that tree. Right? Just look around in society. When you rebel against authority, do things get better or worse? Just study the history of humanity. When you rebel against authority, things get worse. That's Genesis 3. So when I read the Bible, I get a very reliable picture of life. I can trust its statements in every way. We're going to talk more, like I said, about the flood and how the earth, I believe, bears the scars of a catechismic worldwide flood. We'll save comments for that. But again, when you observe nature and how it's laid out, it is consistent that there was some tragedy that happened a few thousand years ago. And then one last thing I'll bring to your attention is in Genesis chapter 11. Everybody in the world, according to Genesis 11, spoke one language. But then, something happened, and God confused their languages, and now we need interpreters. All right, now, from an evolutionary standpoint, if you want to explain that naturally, you have Lucy, who grew up right down the road. And then from Lucy, you have a language that comes forth. What's language? What's the earliest form of hu- human language? If, if you go with natural, naturalistic evolution, it's... <laughs> right? One language. How do you get from one language... <laughs> to... <laughs> and at the same time... <laughs> how do you get Spanish and French and Zulu, and Khosa and Chinese, and coming from one language? I'm sorry, but, but this is something that even science admits this is a problem. We don't understand how the massive variety of languages can all be linked back to one common ancestor. And if you think about it, there are some languages you can see, like Afrikaans, Dutch, German. You can see how those languages come from one people group. When you have Setswana and Shona and, and uh, Swahili and Chichewa, I can hear a little bit of Setswana. I can hear a lot of Shona, actually. I can hear Chichewa and Chibemba. I can hear the connection. So I can see how one family of languages comes from maybe one root language. But see, I, I, I can't put them all back into one language. But the Bible gives me a backstory that makes a lot of sense. That God didn't have just... They were all speaking one, but then he confused the languages and now there are, I'm going to say, probably 12 different root languages. There's a reason I say that, but there's going to be multiple starting points for languages and then you're going to have this, let's call it a Chinese version and then a European or French version and then a Dutch... And then you're going to have languages branching off from different starting points. That makes sense. What I observe in the world... And then when I read it in the Bible, I see it making sense. But if I read it in the science books, I'm left scratching my head saying, now, how can we come to all these languages if we started off with the same grunt? That one grunt, it would be very difficult to get all those different languages. So praise the Lord for this wonderfully written, preserved book that I believe we can trust. In all matters of faith and practice, even even when it comes to scientific things, we, I believe, can trust this book completely. All right, let's all stand. Let's have a word of prayer. Thank you for your time on this. And you guys are welcome to stick around and have some fellowship if you'd like. Father, thank you this evening for this book you've given us. Thank you, Father, that we can trust it. And Lord, we, we trust it in its scientific claims. We understand that's not its uh, primary goal, but Father, we, we believe it. We believe that you're on the other side of nature. You're behind the curtain. And you, better than anyone, can tell us why you did it and how it's supposed to be used. Father, we trust this book not just with that, but with our everyday decisions. How we should treat each other, how we should treat our family, how we should use the language abilities you've given us. Every part, Lord, guide our steps. Order our steps according to thy word. I pray you bless our fellowship and now on the opportunity to go home, get some rest and our week to come. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.